Hi, I'm Jackie Tantillo, and this is Should Have Listened to My Mother. Author, playwright, and poet Jennifer Fell Hayes lives and works in New York and England. She's the recipient of many prestigious awards for her works, including the Yale Distinguished Teachers Award and recognition for her piece, The Wave, which was selected for Swan Day, which stands for Support Women in the Arts Now. Jennifer's work was published twice in the New York Times in 2021. In April, she was the winner of the Golden Shovel Poem Competition, and she also had a Tiny Love Story published in May. And this is how I found my guest. Tiny Love Story, if you're not familiar with it, it's featured in the style section of the Sunday New York Times. Writers submit a 100-word story of an actual tiny love story. I'm so happy to have Jennifer Fellhays join me on Skype from England in a beautiful village called Hawkshead, where none other than William Wordsworth went to school. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. Hi, Jackie. Thank you so much for taking time out of your holiday to speak with us on Should Have Listened to My Mother. How about if we start off our conversation with your mom's name? Yes, my mother um, was born Kathleen Banks, B-A-N-K, and then married my father, Harold Fossfell, and she became Kate Fell. And she is English. Both your parents are English? Yes, both my parents, yes, they're both uh, gone now, but they were both English and both born in Yorkshire, as I was. I had asked you, can you read your tiny love story that was featured in the Times? Yes, I I have it right here. Okay, so this was headed up Treasure Hunt. In my 40s, I spent summers with my widowed mother in England. Before returning to New York, I would write playful notes and hide them round her house. Under the silver candlestick, she discovered the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, and your daughter, love you. For weeks after I left, she would call and laugh, I found another one of your little notes. Cleaning out her house after she died, I found a box in her bedroom. Inside was every note I'd given her, organized by year, the gift she gave back to me. And I read that piece and I just said, I have to find Jennifer Fell Hayes. (laughs) (laughs) It's just really so touching. And then the picture included in the Times, or or maybe it was just online, are the little plastic bags that she had kept your notes by year, right, in a box? Yes, she had, there were about 10 little bags, actually, because I did it for about 10 years. And um, she would find them in funny places, like under the candlestick, or, for instance, in the bathroom, there was a guest tower with a little frog embroidered on it, and she might find one underneath that saying, don't forget me. Um, and it would make her laugh, and we'd stick us around for a bit longer, because we wouldn't see her for nearly a year, and it was a long time as she got older. And what gave you this idea? I don't really know. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure. Um, maybe it started, I used to leave a couple of little gifts with a little card. And um, 
it just occurred to me as a fun thing. And many of them were jokes or rhymes or puns. Um, and, and put little rhymes. Um, I think there was one something like, she had a statue of Shakespeare, and so one was something like, loving you is not so hard, have a look beneath the bard, or something, you know, things like that. And um, she would stuff them in her, you know, penny pocket if she went around dusting. Um, the last year that she lived, when we came back to the house after she'd gone, I, I popped a penny on to wash some dishes or something. And I found a lot in the pocket. And I was just uh, so touched that a bit later, a very kind friend, um, when I'd gone, washed the penny and didn't realize about the notes, and so they all got washed away. Oh, dear. Uh, that particular year. But there were about 10 years' worth of little notes there. And so it just, um, you know, it was incredibly touching to see that she kept them and labeled each little bag with the summer. It was, you know, summer 1997 or whatever it would be. Tell us a little bit about your mom. She had a statue of Shakespeare, so she had a, a love or a fancy for word, for writing, correct? Yes, my, 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 mother, my mother did love to read a lot. Um, it probably it was my father who was particularly the literary one. But my, my mother had gone to London uh, to the Royal Academy of Music um, to study piano, and she got a degree there and, and won some medals. And um, was, was musical and artistic and um, noted for her elegance. She was, she was a very beautiful, very elegant lady. And... Um, um, had uh, she could have a quick temper, very briefly, and um, <laughs> she was. In... <laughs> she once threw a dishcloth at my a wet dishcloth at my father, um, and um, she was uh, in- incredibly kind and caring to her friends, especially as they got older. And I think that's one thing I learned from her. Um, you know, we, we would go over for the summer and she would say, oh, you know, could you possibly fit in going to see Auntie so-and-so? And I called everybody Auntie I'd known since I was a little girl, even if they weren't relatives. And um, she would go and visit friends, even when it was tough for her, and take little gifts. And I guess I learned, you know, not just to love and cherish your friends, but when they particularly need support to be there for them. And I did learn that from her. Um, and uh, she had a, a quirky sense of humor. We would giggle about things. She, you know, she, she would giggle about my notes, or she would tell me funny stories after my dad had gone of little things which happened, and we, we would both laugh about it. Um, she, she was the kind of lady, too, she would drive my dad crazy sometimes. We'd be waiting to go out somewhere, and um, mother would just say, oh, no, I forgot my scarf, and she'd dash back in. And Dad would be. Dad had a rather impatient side, and he'd be waiting. And then she'd come down, and she'd say, "Oh no, sorry, Foster, I just got to go and get my whatever." And she might do that two or three times. <laughs> and there was one famous occasion when um, my father kind of just lost it, and he said to my brother, "Never marry a woman, Jeremy." <laughs> <laughs> oh Which, my gosh! Uh, Did she do it on purpose to get him? No, no, no. She and I find I do that a bit sometimes now. You know, my husband's waiting. I say, "Oh no, I forgot my cell phone." <laughs> um, so I'm not sure what that was, but uh, it became you know a bit of family fun. We'd laugh about it. Did she continue with her music after she had the family? Is it just you and your brother, or are there other siblings? 
Well, what happened really was um, war broke out, World War Two, and um, it was it was very hard for her to practice. My father was away; he was an officer in the British Army, and uh, my brother and I were babies. And she moved in to live with her mother, but life was you know pretty tough then. And um, there was never time to really to play the piano much. So after the war, she would go. She had a beautiful grand piano. She would go and play it. I remember as a little girl creeping to the top of the stairs after I was supposed to be in bed to listen to her playing, you know, some Chopin or a Brahms waltz downstairs. And I, um, I think it was kind of magical. But she would get she would get very frustrated because she she was she was a perfectionist, my mother too, and she'd been used to playing well and because she hadn't practiced it wasn't she knew it didn't sound to us bad, but she knew. And um so in the end, um when they downsized and went into a smaller house, um, she sold her piano. And I always felt a bit sad about that. But um she found many ways for her artistic outlets, I think. And when my daughter was little, she would, she made up endless ways to sort of amuse a child. She got a kind of cardboard box and made a wonderful little dollhouse with it, with things she found and made, and, and uh, that kind of thing. And um, and she read, and um, she always, the house always looked beautiful, and she was a, a brilliant cook. One of the things I really miss is, is um, you know, my mother's homemade things or cakes or she was just she could make a fantastic meal out of practically nothing. What's one particular meal that you thought was just delicious and above and beyond? My home well, my always on my first night home, when I would come home from somewhere, she would um cook a salmon, a whole you know, a big piece of a whole salmon in the oven. And it was always delectable, perfectly cooked. And she would make a homemade um not really a mayonnaise, but a homemade kind of dressing that would go with it. And she would slice cucumbers in, a, in vinegar and, and, and other things that would be delicious. And that would be served with asparagus and new potatoes. And it's just not a fancy meal, but it was, everything would be perfect and everything would be lovely. And, uh, and <laughs> I try to cook it myself, and my husband says he really likes you know, the way I cook salmon, but I always feel it's not quite up to my mother's standard. Oh, gosh, that's hard, right? Oh, but it's so great. <laughs> Did you used to cook with her when you were little? Uh, a, a little bit, yes. I went away to boarding school at nine, you see, and so I was away a lot of the year. Um, but I would cook with her a little bit. Actually, it was my brother, who's a brilliant cook, who learned more from her. Um, I was less interested at the time, but then I became... Actually, I'm quite a good cook now, and I love it, and I think it's because of her. And how about you tell me some more ways that your mom influenced your life? Um, because because she had been to London um, to study music in the 1930s, and um, that was pretty unheard of for a young woman then. But my grandfather, you know, was wonderful enough to let her go do that. Because when I, in my turn, I... I went to school at nine, as I just said, that's what reminded me. And, you know, most of um, the other people in my class were 11. So I graduated instead of at 18. I took my advanced levels at 16, taken my O-levels at 14. And you're meant to be 16 for O-levels and 18, roughly, for A-levels. It varies a bit. 
But anyway, I graduated uh, two years early, and nobody quite knew what to do with me at that time. Um, the headmistress thought I should go to Oxford, but um, nobody really talked about it. I just left school. And so um, eventually, after being in Belgium a while to speak French, because I'd done A-level French, um, my mother said, well, you should do a secretarial course. It's always a useful thing. So I did. And then she said, well, look, Jenny, in the local paper, they're looking for um, a, a, a young reporter. Why don't you apply for that? So I did, and I got the job, and I loved it. But I found that um, after a year doing that, if I'd wanted to carry on, I would have had to specialize in fashion and cookery. Well, I like fashion, I like cookery, but I didn't want to spend my life with that. I'd been doing you know, court reporting and all sorts of somewhat exciting local stories. So I thought, no, that's not right. And my mother then, again, she said, well, look, you know, you've always been very keen on drama. You did very well at school with those exams. Why don't you apply, you know, uh, to do drama? And then she said, maybe you could teach drama a little bit and um, support yourself for your writing. And so she had had a teacher at her school who became a famous novelist called Marguerite Steen. And she had taught mother what was then called elocution, you know, speaking nicely. And But she wrote little plays for the schoolgirls to put on. And mother had been very taken with her. And so um, I thought that's a good idea. And I was taking some lessons with a local teacher. And she said, well, if you're serious about it, you should go to London and stay in Yorkshire. And people said to my father, don't let, you know, your daughter go to London, spend all that money. She's only going to get married. Spend the money on your boy. And my father, luckily, um, and I'm sure with my mother's advice, said, oh, if that's the best place for her to do, she should go there. So I was lucky, and I wound up at the Central School of Speech and Drama. Um, and um, that really changed my whole life. And I... You know, theatre was a big passion, as was writing. So I taught, um, I taught drama or drama and English combos, and I taught things like acting, directing, playwriting. I had, you know, I really enjoyed it. I ran um, theatre departments and arts departments in three of the top private schools in Manhattan over the years, and, um, and that was all because of my mother. Um, she she was extraordinary, and I, looking back, I realized how she influenced my life in a huge, major way uh, because of that. Do you think your mom learned from her decisions to get married at a young age? She felt that you should be able to pursue your passion, your interests, and a career? Oh, I see, yes. Well, she wasn't terribly happy with my first marriage. Um, which was um, to um, a young man I met at the drama school who had actually been John Lennon's double in Hard Day's Night and the rock singer in his own right, which was catnip to a very young woman uh, at that time. <laughs> and um, my mother and, and father did not think he was simply a good husband, and he wasn't, and we did divorce. But in fact, we're good friends now, <laughs> and um, I enjoy, you know, if I see him occasionally. So, But it wasn't a good idea to get married to him. Um, so they were not happy about that. Um, but then, you know, fortunately, I married again, and I was with that um, husband, uh, actually, 40 years, whom I loved very, very much, but he, alas, died nine years ago, and um, 
uh, I had my daughter with him. Um, and then um, I'd been very fortunate, latterly, to meet another absolutely lovely man, and I've been married to him three and a half years now. Um, so, <laughs> so Mother was very happy to see me, as she didn't know Doug, my current husband, but she adored and loved Bryant, who, funnily enough, his mother had been her roommate, also a music student in London, though she was from America at the time in the 30s. So there was another big influence, because I would not have met him had it not have been that their friendship endured. And when he graduated from the University of America, he came to the British Isles to do some graduate work at the University of Kansas we met that summer. So... So she wow, was she's in my life. Kind of, yes. Yeah. <laughs> very, very entangled. Kathleen. <laughs> all sorts of threads weaving together this uh, tapestry here. <laughs> How wonderful is that? Did you know your maternal grandmother at all? I did, though she died when I was nine. Um, I did my granny, I called her. And... Um, she, in fact, um, when we moved out to a lovely village called Follyfoot, where we had quite a big house, and Bran came and had her own part of it initially, as she was getting older. And um, so it, that was lovely that you know, she lived there with us, but um, not for very long, because alas, she died. I think it's about a year or even less than a year after she moved in. But it, my mother was comforted to have her with her, because she'd been a bit anxious about her. They had a good relationship? Uh, yes, they did. I think my mother was closer with her father, but um, she and her mother, you know, would get a bit exasperated sometimes. But generally, they, I mean, she loved her mother, and her mother obviously loved her and the daughter of grandchildren. Um, but, uh, I mean, I would get exasperated with my mother, you know, particularly at a time when I was maybe 17, 18, and uh, dating a boy she thought very unsuitable. <laughs> um, I was madly in love, <laughs> and uh, so we'd have big fights about that. And uh, you know, and um, obviously, as you grow up and you're trying to separate from your parents, you you suddenly get disenchanted with their points of view, and you start getting your own ideas. And so we would, you know, we would have arguments, or we would. I would feel, I guess, I felt at my most um, apart from her when I was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, or so. But. Gradually, as I matured, and probably the central lobes matured with me, um, I came to realize how wonderful she was, and um, I I was able to put aside, you know, the irritations and, and just love her. <laughs> I actually adored her. Um, it's nice how that works that out. Have, yes, I mean, not that we didn't sometimes have little run-ins or where we'd get impatient with her sometimes and try not to, and, um, you know, she would... She, she she did things very, very well, and she liked to do them that way. And I maybe had learned to do fairly well things a certain other way, and, you know, silly kitchen little things when we were staying, and, you know, things to do with making the ice. And <laughs> so, um, but they were not serious, and underneath it, she was always incredibly supportive of me. Um, you know, whenever I had anything troublesome going on, she would, she would be right there for me, as was my father. I was very, very lucky in having, you know, such loving, supportive parents, I know. Um, and have tried to be a loving, supportive parent in my turn. <laughs> um, Is it make it easier raising your own, your daughter, having had that, that love and affection and that strength and support? Yes. 
Yes. And my daughter feels that too. And um, we, you know, we love each other very much. Um, we, we, again, we had run-ins um, late teens and when she was finding herself and behaving in ways I thought were, were not great. Um, but we're through that now. She's happily married and, uh, and I'm very close with her. Um, I absolutely adore her. So uh, one thing I should say about my mother is that as a baby, um, I had to um, have some unpasteurized milk in the wartime because the milkman had gone to fight in the army and I got a TV gland on my neck. So as a, baby, as a baby, I had general anesthesia three times in surgery. And so my mother was particularly protective of me as a little girl because I, I tended to get sick quite often and, um, and had some things like I had to have my tonsils and adenoids out, I had an emergency appendix, I had you know, various little emergencies like that. Um, so, but she was incredibly loving and tender nursing me when I was on well. Did she, when you say she protected you, was she worried for your health and well-being, like she didn't want you to be a little kid and run around and play, or she was just concerned about your health? She was concerned about my health. I didn't hear the second part of what you said. Was she, you know, some moms, because of fear, right, they wrap their arms around their child so much to protect them. Yeah, she, uh, there was a, a little bit of that. You know, she was worried when I started work as a reporter, I wouldn't be able to sustain a day's work. In fact, I'm, I'm particularly strong and fit as a flea, and she got astonished later at my teaching all day, directing all night, writing. She couldn't believe everything that was going on. Um, but I had been, you know, quite poorly as, as a little girl, and so it was understandable. And um, I think frightening for her because her mother had lost a child. Um, her older sister died before she was born, age three. And so there was that running through the family, I think. So when her child, um, you know, had to have these surgeries, and because it was wartime, one of the surgeries, she took me to the hospital. And apparently they, they said, take, take me up to the outside the operating theater. And a doctor or a nurse came to take me from her arms. And my mother said, are you going to put her out before you take her in? And they said, oh, no, babies don't remember. They grabbed me. Apparently there were claw marks on her arms where I clung to her. And mother tried her best to argue the toss, but they, they grabbed me and took me off. And um, what happened later, when I was about 12, I, I had nightmares for quite a while and I told mom one day and um, the nightmare was of people with masks over their faces coming at me with long silver things um, so, so don't say babies don't remember yeah, you remembered um, oh. yeah so she, she would tell me that story and she was still um, upset about that when you would listen to your uh, mom playing the piano music often helps your imagination. Would you ever create stories as a child listening to that music? Is is that something that instilled your imagination? Yes, I think so. I think um, I like to, when I'm writing, I like to have some classical music playing. Um, I find it inspires me. I love music. I, you know, I love going to concerts. I play music constantly at home. And um, that all stems from that time, I think, with, you know, when she would play. And um, 
I've always had it, you know, as a child I had a very active imagination and, you know, we'd, we'd make up stories. I, I wrote my first quotes around it book when I was six um, about the princess Atalanta. <laughs> and um, I think, um, you know, listening to music, listening to mother playing or, or to other people playing, um, you know, I would, I would get some images and thoughts and I think that can inspire poetry too. Um, I think music's very important in my life. Um, so, so yeah. So when I ask the question, "Are you who you are today because of or in spite of your mother?" Yes. <laughs> well, it's because of my mother. I mean, some of some of the fighting to be myself. I suppose you could say in spite of because I. You know, I want him to be my own person, but really I owe, and I've only been thinking of this recently, how much I do owe to her for all, the, you know, the way my path of life went in um, shaping my career and uh, doing um, theatre, you know, writing plays and writing other things and, um, and teaching I was really inspired by what Mother had told me and what she said. And, uh, and I think it's been an absolutely marvelous, um, marvelous career. And I, I loved, really loved it. Do you think she believed in herself as a mom? Did she think she was a good mother? I think she did. Yes, I think she did. I mean, I think, I think she knew how much she had put into being a mother and being a good mother. Um, you know, she she put tremendous effort into that. Um, as I say, was was really always there for me. Um, she she also she was very in tune with me because I mean even like a little psychic thing. I remember one day when I was teaching, um, I had stayed home because I had a fever. I was sick, and it was like a weekday, and the phone rang. It was my mother, and I said, "Heavens, Mum, why are you calling now? You know, I should be at school." And she said, "Oh, I just had a feeling you weren't well." You know that kind of thing. She 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 sort of um, picked picked me up. You know, emotionally, mentally. I don't try to do. Yeah, um, that's so pretty we, great. I think we, I think we were very close, and I think she felt she was a good mother to me. And I certainly told her so. As when she got older, you know, she knew how much I loved her. And in fact, um, the last three years of her life, because she'd had. Um, uh, a, a, a bit of heart failure and been hospitalized three years before and I'd flown through the night thinking she wouldn't make it but got to the hospital and there she was sitting up in bed saying well why on earth have you come what a waste of money Great. <laughs> <laughs> and she nearly died but, um, so for the next three years I rang her every day from New York on a um, you know I had a, a, pay, a one of those at the time, you had a, a you could buy them at the newsagent a pay card. I can't remember what it was now. It was a, a phone card. card or something. You, yeah. you would put it, you would put in the money, and then you could make a long distance call. So I called her every day just to sort of check up she was okay. Um, and the night she died, um, I had. Well, the night before she died, I had done a performance of a play that we, you can't take it with you, ironically called. And the Saturday morning, um, I went to Winter to tell her how it had gone. And the phone rang and rang and rang and there was no answer. I got this 
terrible cold chill. And I thought, oh, no. And then she came to the phone, and she was giggling, and she said, you just caught me in the bathroom. And we had a lovely chat, and we talked about it. I was going to go over just after Christmas, this was November. And we talked about what we would do when I came and made lovely plans, and, um, and that was it. And the next day, therefore, after another performance, I didn't call her right away. I was having a bit of a lie-in on Sunday morning. And when I felt the phone was ringing, and it was a friend to say she died. Mm-hmm. And so it was so funny that I'd been so worried the day before I thought she'd gone, and then it was the next day. Um, so, you know, pretty devastating. And uh, I mean, so many of us have been through losing a lot of but I'm sure anybody listening can relate to that and knows that. But, you know, trying to get England to, to get there, you know, just, uh, you know, you, you have to deal with these things and live through them. But, um, it was very devastating, particularly as I'd adored my dad, and it was this was, you know, he'd gone already. So then, when both parents are gone, and um, and you know, and mother, I just had loved her so much. So I was so excited when they took, you know, they liked the little tiny story for the Times, and I thought, oh, I wish, I wish that she could have known about that. She would have been so tickled. I'm sure she knows, and I'm so glad we shared it. I'm so appreciative that you were willing to have this conversation. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Jackie. Thank you so much. Joining us via Skype from Hawkshead, England, author, poet, and playwright Jennifer Fellhays. Do yourself a favor and check out the Zoom performance of her one-act reading of Seal's Song, Deep Water, and Overboard. It's really, really great. I'm Jackie Tantillo. Join me next week on Should Have Listened to My Mother. ¶¶